0: Welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Ambreen Khan. We explore the beliefs shaping our world from politics and culture to leadership. Although we turned a fresh page on the calendar to 2023, many of the stories we'll encounter this year are not new from protests calling for an end to the Khomeini regime in Iran, to culture and faith in sports, to the war in Ukraine, and the rise of religious nationalism. My guests this week offer their analysis on how different beliefs are shaping events, conflict, and leadership struggles around the globe. We begin with Kalpana Jain, a veteran journalist who's covered the intersection of politics, religion, gender, and communal violence— She's also the author of Positive Lives, a first-of-its-kind look at the AIDS crisis in India. Today, Jane is a senior journalist and the senior ethics and religion editor at The Conversation US, a global news and commentary-based website in Cambridge, Massachusetts. What were the top international stories, let's say the top three international stories that you feel are going to continue to be relevant as we go into 2023?
1: I think one of the top stories on my mind at this point of time is still Russia and Ukraine. You know, we see what's going on, the tensions, the attacks, the cities destroyed. I mean, there's way more than that. You know, the way we covered it on the religion desk was through the Orthodox Church. And I think for a lot of reporters, it might have been um, rare, pretty much, to cover the Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church. But this is the time we really got in deep into it. Um, that will still continue to be a story. The protests in Iran—it was—it's been really interesting, and um, you know, to watch uh, how young schoolgirls have been out on the streets. The the level of protests. i mean, some people say that it's like the nineteen seventy nine. Revolution, um, so and those haven't abated. There are, you know, a lot of arrests going on, um, but yet those protests, we'll see those continuing in this year. There is a lot going on in Afghanistan as well, and I'm hoping we can pick
0: up, um, you know, um, that story as well. Let's start with uh, Ukraine and Russia for for listeners who may not follow the story from a religious angle, what was the biggest kind of news that came out of the relationship in the Orthodox Church in Ukraine this year?
1: So, um, you know, part of the reason the church has been in the news is because of Patriarch Kirill, who has supported the war.
0: And just for listeners, Patriarch yeah. Kirill, tell us who he's, he is. He's the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. He
1: is pretty close to Putin, and he has uh, he has sort of you know spoken against what he sees as a Western way of supporting LGBTQ people and other things that he thinks are sort of sins in the West. Um, then there is there has been an ongoing tension between the two main Orthodox churches of Ukraine. So to back up a little bit, the church in Ukraine, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, was originally only and only under the Orthodox Church of Russia. In 2018, one of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church broke away from what is called the Moscow Patriarchate. so there was considerable con- controversy over this there was lo- you know lot of the news reports that i saw around the time of the war said that you know this has followed after the war but that has not been so uh we've had scholars writing for us who you know give talked about that history and how that schism really started in 2018 um russia has been much opposed to this they still haven't recognized the ukrainian orthodox church the point being that you know as we know um, russians believe or the russian orthodox church believe that they are the same people and therefore they should be governed by the same church and the same church should be under the authority of russia whereas there are people in ukraine who say that they need an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church because they have their own culture and their own traditions and it is not acceptable to them to be under Moscow.
0: Mm. And what is striking about this is that um, Vladimir Putin in particular has sought to tap into this history. I I read a piece that was produced by The Conversation, uh, featured by um, Professor Eugene Clay, I believe, in which he referenced how uh, particularly Putin signaling his support for creating one church that would govern and be seen as legitimate across the entire region. It reminded me as I was reading it of Some of the language that we would call religious nationalism, that the national and and political and military campaign was seen as furthering a religious vision about unifying and consolidating power. Am I reading too much into that? No, that's absolutely right. Can you give me an example of how Vladimir Putin has sought to kind of inspire The faithful to see the military campaign as a part of a a religious mandate, as part of a calling that that is greater and larger than his political aspirations. You
1: know, Ambreen, it's really interesting that Putin has created a new church that was dedicated on the outskirts of Moscow in June 2020, and it is called the Main Church of the Russian Armed Forces. It's very interesting. It was conceived by the Russian defense minister. And this followed the annexation of Crimea, which was illegal, as you know. So this, this really speaks to the militant religious nationalism that's happening there and how the church is involved. It's, the whole structure of the church is so interesting and how it celebrates Russia's military might.
0: And how does the broader religious community react to this? Have you noticed or have you been watching how they are responding to these, what some would probably describe as provocations?
1: Yes. Yeah, so from what we know, it's it's very split. Um, just the creation of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine tells us a few things. So, you know, people are divided on that. But there are churches, the Orthodox churches, that have supported the creation of the new church, and importantly, within among them is Constantinople, which is you know could be considered the very first or the main branch of the Orthodox Church. Um, and along with Constantinople is um, Cyprus, um, Greece, Alexandria. So there's quite a bit of support for the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, but. Uh, You know, there are others who think that um, the two people are spiritually united, and they cannot be broken,
0: or they cannot Mm. be split. Can we hop over to Iran for a moment? One of the stories that really emerged this year that I think has uh, captivated, at least for, for periods of time, not sustained is the role that the morality police have played in Iran and how this young generation of uh, Iranians are resisting and the sustained resistance in the face of mortal danger. Can you talk a little bit about how religion and religiosity is manifesting in Iran in ways that Americans may not necessarily realize?
1: That's a great question and just goes to the heart of what I try to do in my job which is to really parse out what is going on here is it religion is it some something else is it you know uh, politics is it patriarchy and I think we see all those things happening in Iran and it's uh, um might be going um I won't say incorrect, but I think we have to really understand how much of this is religion and how much are other factors playing a role here. So when we're talking about the morality police, and of course, you know, the current protests that you see are a result of the excessive power that they have and, you know, how a young woman died while being in their custody. So the roots of this morality police really go back to the time of the prophet when it was set up basically as people who could who could see in society what is going wrong and you know put a check on it by the 20th century you know we see wahhabism come into saudi arabia and the morality police just gains more prominence so i think we have to be very careful before we you know, say that this is religion because there are so many other factors, as I said, coming into it, you know, once the Ayatollah comes in after the 1979 revolution and he looks at the West and what he says, the West, West Toxication. and this morality police just, you know, gains more and more power. Um, so eventually later, during Mahmud Ahmad Nijad, it becomes part of the police force. So, you know, mm. there's a gradual evolution of this force and how it results in today's harsh crackdowns.
0: Is it true that the first um, kind of muhitasib that you're describing in the 7th century was, was, was a woman?
1: Um,
0: it is not clear
1: to me if the first was a woman. But these were people, market inspectors, as they were called, though eventually they were women.
0: Mm. You know, there are a couple of things that you that I'm hearing you say. One is that it sounds like the role of these market inspectors or the the interpretation of what it means to forbid uh, that which is wrong or evil um, has evolved in a political context in which the police themselves become an extension of the power of the state. It doesn't sound very religious or spiritual. It sounds like a way of repressing criticism of the regime.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, if you then you go back to the time of the Shah. So the... Reza Shah. That's
0: right, because this is because the the hijab or the head covering. And as you were saying earlier, women's bodies, particularly in the battle around modernity, have been are often kind of where these battles are fought. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's so. So during the time of the Shah, what was the view of the head covering.
1: So it's really interesting and I don't think a lot of people might realize this because they understand at least in America Iran in a very different way and a lot of people do you know as this country where women are repressed and the veil becomes a symbol of that but at the time of the first Shah of Iran uh Reza Pahlavi women were forced to remove their veils and there was mm-hmm. a mandatory unveiling act in 1936 and, you know, even when women wanted to wear the veil, they were not allowed to wear the veil and, we, you know, their progress in society, how they were seen, viewed, could be just restricted because they were wearing the veil. And while his son, the Shah of Iran, who came later, you know, wasn't as strict, but the point is that If you weren't on that path of what was seen to be modernity, you could suffer in many different ways and opportunities could be denied to you.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because I have been watching, when we did the story with uh, Raza Aslan, I was spending some time on social media and watching some of the links that he had shared. And you could see in some instances that members of the morality police were actually deterred And we're not enforcing and that several scholars that were staying in touch and and trying to amplify what they were hearing from the streets because of the channels of communication being blocked was that in a lot of places, especially that were more affluent uh, the morality police were less inclined. More women allowed their their head veils to drop and nobody was uh, preventing them from continuing to be in public or be in the marketplace or be in the restaurant. The, the demand, though, that I want to just get back to for a second as we are looking for an, into 2023, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but the demand here. Isn't just for the morality police to be disbanded. Uh, there's the the protest is women' life freedom, and a familiar chant is, you know, death to the dictator, down with the dictator. You would suggest that there's a desire for a complete re um, a complete revolution.
1: Yes, I think I think you're right there because Iranians they're pushing back against the entire oppression of the regime. It's not just against women. It's against a lot of other policies. And, you know, Iran has suffered. People don't... There's a financial crisis at this point of time. They, you know, people want jobs. People need progress. And this regime hasn't helped them. So, you know, it's back to... We are seeing somewhat of what we saw in 1979. And, um, you know, people... Do not want this regime. So, hijab is one part of it, but there are a lot of other issues at play at this point of time. And you mentioned the thing about, you know, how the affluent people were not being checked, but I've seen a lot of reports out there and scholars have written that in any case, even under this regime, there was a different set of rules for the rich, for the very affluent. They could go around, you know, women could go around without whales and forget whales. They could, you know, go out swimming in their swimsuits. They weren't checked, but the laws and the oppressive laws for those who weren't that affluent.
0: Mm. And so that all create, that has yeah, yeah. led
1: to a lot of dissent. A regime comes to power and then tries to use religion and shape it in the way that it serves them and a minority. There can be many, many different examples of this. How uh, I could cite even India as an example, you know. So a pro-Hindu nationalist government is trying to shape religion in a certain way and define it for people. And it's the same in Iran. You know, what is moral? What is religion? People have their own ideas of how they want to practice their faith. And, you know, once the political party starts to decide what is faith and how people should practice it, um, it is problematic. And you see it in the United States too. I mean, what is that ruling on abortion?
0: It's an important point you're making that when a political party um, embraces a religious ideology or one interpretation of theology and practice and what is moral and what is not and attempts to legislate it and weaponize it through laws and restricting behavior and movement and rights, that by eliminating that freedom of conscience, one of the effects is that it can alienate the faithful and discourage and you know tarnish the quote unquote brand of a tradition. I was in a conversation recently with some young people who really are are very um, I don't know how to put it. They they are rejecting the ideas and the traditions of Hinduism and citing Modi as the reason. Yes, and I would say that that is really
1: unfortunate. They see this political ideology uh, that is almost forced on them, and they want to run away from it. I mean, Hinduism is can be everything beautiful, ranging from atheistic beliefs to different philosophical beliefs. You know, it's a way of being, and it's not controlled by a church by one person, as they are trying to do currently. you know the Hindu nationalist version of it where they start to define the beliefs Hinduism is millions of different beliefs and that's the way people have liked to practice it because it gives you so much of freedom to to choose your beliefs and I think that's the same with many other faiths, they give you freedom to be and how you want to be within that faith, within those you know um, moral parameters that a faith often helps you set hmm
0: I'm Ambreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. My conversation with Kalpana Jain, the senior writer and editor of Religion and Ethics at the Conversation US, continues after this short break. Stay with us. Khan, and this is inspired by interfaith voices. This week we're talking about the religion angle in the top global news stories that carry forward into 2023. Before the break, Kalpana Jain, the senior ethics and religion editor at The Conversation, described how the orthodox churches in Ukraine and Russia have become part of the conflict. We also touched on the history of repression in Iran that has sparked national protests and calls for another revolution. In both regions, Jane described how faith and politics intersect with national identity. As we get back to the conversation, we turn our attention now to how the rise in religious political nationalism is unfolding in the world's largest democracy, India. I know that India is a country that you have done extensive reporting. Talk to me about how the Modi regime and their political attempts to define India as a Hindu state. What is the effect on the religious minorities within India? So let me first explain you know, to an American audience what India
1: really looks like. Um, often when you ask people, about their identity, people don't say they are Hindu because Hinduism as a category, as some scholars would say, was put on people under the colonial rule. Because, you know, once the British went to India and they saw this wide, wide diversity of people, they needed to put people in categories. And therefore, Hinduism came as a category for a people of wide um You know, range of beliefs. So people would often say, you know, I'm a Konkani, I'm a Kashmiri, I'm this, I'm that. They're ethnic identities. There are within religions, there is like, you know, I'm a Vaishnavite, I'm a Shaivite. So depending on the God that they worship, there are those identities. What Modi is trying to do is, and has been done as part of, you know, when, when religious nationalism or hindu nationalism emerged under the british colonial rule was the idea to unite all these different groups under one hindu umbrella so that is what modi is trying to do that people who at this point of time identify themselves as you know through their ethnic identity or other religion identity come together as hindus so that's one part of it um the other is what is going on with minorities. Yes, I mean, you know, there are there are many things going on with the minorities. So, Christians, Muslims, um, I would say, they've been under attack under this government. There have been various incidents. Um, this year, um, the BJP, which is the ruling party's spokes- spokesperson. Uh, made a blasphemous comment against the Prophet, and that led to, you know, a huge uproar. Of course, the Modi government quickly realized that they need to, uh, you know, quickly check it before it goes completely out of their hands. So they um, fired the spokesperson. But then, you know, it had its own fallout. India is a country where quickly communal tensions can rise. It can lead to more conflicts amongst the different faith groups. That is what happened at that point of time. Um, a Hindu was very brutally killed, which again, you know, it doesn't help. Then it further builds up tensions. It further raises uh, the level of fear and threat that people feel. And I think what to my mind is deeply upsetting is we've lived in this country of wide religious diversity. At Christmas time, you'll see, you know, um, I know in my home, there used to be a Christmas tree, uh, even though I'm not a Christian by faith. Um, so it would be in many, many homes, you know, people go out and celebrate. They celebrate with their neighbors. It's the same with Eid. It's the same with Diwali. People come out and just celebrate with their neighbors, whether they think it's their particular faith or not. That's the way people have lived for centuries. In my own home, my parents used to, you know, light, adhiya to the Sufis, uh, a Sufi saint. We used to go to these Sufi mosques. That's just been the fabric of the country. Um, now that is slowly, my fear is getting eroded. As people, mm-hmm. there is more fear of the other and there is less and less of this feeling that we are one country in this diversity. And that mm. will be a huge long-term damage if that really happens.
0: What is the Muslim Brotherhood, and why does its leadership matter?
1: So, um, Ibrahim Munir, the leader of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, he died recently. The news media pretty much missed these this as putting it as headline news, um, and now the group has a new temporary leader. So, the thing is. Where will the group head now? We don't know. Um, for Americans who don't know the history of Muslim Brotherhood, it was established in 1928 by Hassan al-Banna, who's a primary school teacher, and that was a time of British colonialism. This was, you know, happening in many other parts of the world where um, there was disillusionment, where you know islamic faith had reached a zenith in many ways culturally religiously politically and then there was a, the disillusionment was about that you know what did we do wrong and how how come we are in this state today given that uh, the the colonial rule had taken over many countries and the brotherhood came as a grassroots movement and it set up schools newspapers social services And then it came to really dominate the civil society in Egypt. Um, but in recent years, there's been a more widespread mobilization against the brotherhood. Um, so a new leadership is, you know, will help decide which way, whether the brotherhood really survives, um, given the challenging political circumstances it's dealing with, and what will happen to it. It is a very influential group, or it was a very influential group until recently, but in 2013, things started to change for it in Egypt. Um, It's been brutally put down, um, and there are also a lot of divisions within it. And it is not finding as much support that it used to have earlier. Mm. And the question of leadership is a pivotal one at this time.
0: Thank you for widening the lens and bringing us uh, some international stories that we need to stay attentive to. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Ambreen. It's always a pleasure talking to you.
0: Kalpana Jain is the author of Positive Lives, an award-winning journalist and editor. She is the senior writer and editor of religion and ethics at the global commentary and news website, Conversation U.S. Links to the articles we discussed can be found in this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. Coming up, we stay global with Dilshad Ali. She's the editor and writer for Hot Hijab News Blog. Stay with us.